This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to Check the Locks podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we get into it, last week we did some questions, we did some answers, we did some updates. This week is a brand new case from you. I am super excited to hear about it. But before we jump in, how are you? How was your week? How are you feeling? It's uh, As always, it's great to see you. I know it's my favorite time of the week when we get to sit down and talk about true crime. Um, but no, I've been doing really well. How have you been doing? How's the new job treating you? Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate it. Yeah, You're it's welcome. been great. It's a little bit of a transition. The hours and things like that are different. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. But other than that, it's been uh, it's been really cool. So I'm with you, though. This is my favorite time of the week. Love breaking down these cases. I love that we're coming back with another deep dive on a brand new case. And you sent me a little sneak peek on this. It's pretty heavy. So I'm excited to get into it. I feel like we've really kind of ramped up the cases that we've been doing lately. They seem to be kind of be getting a little darker and darker. I really enjoy it. It seems like our listeners really enjoy it. So super, super pumped to do it. Yeah, I think now it's like a competition. Who can get the darkest case, which is good for our listeners. Olivia, I say we just jump into it. Let's talk a little bit. Tell the listeners, what is this week's case about? This week's case is about the Bikini Strangler, and this happened in Clemson, South Carolina at the well-known Clemson University. 
And so this case was recommended to me by one of our listeners and a close friend of mine who was living in the area at the time of this uh, murder. So um, we'll maybe touch base with her a little bit later and kind of get her thoughts on how Clemson was and um, what her thoughts were and feelings were being a a student close by. That sounds absolutely awesome. I think it's going to be really cool to kind of hear from somebody who was there at the time. Like I said, you sent me a sneak peek of this, so I'm really excited to jump into it. it. It seems like it's going to be a little shocking. Yeah, let's get right into the case. On May 25th, 2006, Tiffany Marie Sowers was in her off-campus apartment, The Reserve. She was living with her roommates while she was a student at Clemson University. She was home alone on a Friday night as her roommates were gone for the weekend. It was later determined that the killer first noticed her on her outside porch earlier in the day. At about 1 a.m., the killer returned to the reserve apartments, entering Sowers' home by climbing over the porch railing. He enters her bedroom, where Tiffany struggles with the killer. He eventually overpowers her and binds her hands and feet together behind her back. He demands for her wallet and takes the ATM and credit cards. Once he got all the items, he proceeded to brutally rape her vaginally and anally. Her time of death was thought to be around 1.30 a.m. The killer flees the apartment and stops at the SunTrust Bank in Clemson and unsuccessfully tries to use the ATM cards four different times, the first time being at 3.22 a.m., 3.29, 3.31, and 3.32. He then drives to the Wachovia Bank and attempts to use the ATM cards two different times there as well. He was photographed with a bandana tied over his face from the ATM machines. The killer drove back to his Dandron, Tennessee home, throwing out Sauer's personal belongings along the way. A pedestrian found Tiffany's driver's license on Highway 76 near Tri-County Tech. I was trying to figure out some of the geography around Clemson and where Dandron, Tennessee is. And so from Clemson, South Carolina to Dandron, Tennessee, it's 162 miles. But then I got confused because the story is is that he was throwing out Sour's personal belongings along the way. But if I looked up um, on Highway 76 near the Tri-County Tech, I'm assuming that that's the Tri-County Technical College, which seemed to be in the city of Clemson, actually south of Dandron. Like, he would have had to have gone out of his way to go on Highway 76 like he went somewhere else on his way and then went back to Tennessee. Yeah. And so far with you kind of talking about what he's doing, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, obviously I don't know, but you know, we're going to a couple of different banks. I wonder if maybe he was like driving around. And of course this is speculation, but I wonder if he was driving around, maybe like trying to think of another way that he might be able to use the debit cards or things like that. Oh yeah. That's a good, that's a good speculation. Cause I was like, why would they find stuff like still in Clemson, but out of the direction in which he was going back home. But that makes plenty of sense. Because I don't know where the SunTrust Bank and if that even exists anymore along with the Wakova Bank. But that makes, that makes sense. Tiffany's body was found in her bedroom by her roommate the following day around 1.30 p.m. Let's talk about who Tiffany Marie Sowers was. Tiffany was the oldest of three children. Her family was from St. Louis, Missouri, where they lived until she graduated high school. Uh, she was attending summer school at Clemson University in hopes to graduate early with a degree in engineering. Friends and family described Tiffany as a kind and compassionate do-gooder. She would spend her free time volunteering to help people in need, and she was overall a great person, and friends described her death as losing a sister. In fact, three days prior to her murder, Sauer signed up to volunteer with a prison ministry group offering to write letters and bake for convicts. She wanted a way to make their lives better, said her mother, Bryn Sowers. She thought everybody deserves a second chance. You know what this reminds me of? What? This reminds me of Sherry Smith from the Larry Jean Bell episode. 
uh-huh. like that kind of person where where she was just a good person in general yeah. and then just happens out of sure circumstance and craziness in the universe ends up being a victim to some psychopath, you know? Yeah. So let's jump into some of the evidence. So the autopsy results showed that there was extensive bruising to her wrists and ankles, which was consistent with being restrained during a struggle. And then there was also evidence of traumatic sexual intercourse. Her cause of death was asphyxia due to ligature strangulation. The bikini top used to kill her was tightly twisted around her neck, cutting off the blood flow. Semen was found on the apartment carpet and the DNA from the vaginal swabs from the autopsy were matched. These DNA samples were sent to the National DNA Database. And on June 6, 2006, the DNA was matched to two profiles, one in North Carolina and one in Florida, both belonging to Jerry Buck Inman. So this week, John and I decided to do something a little bit different. Um, And we actually sat down and interviewed my friend, Megan, who was actually living in Clemson at the time of this murder. Yeah, it was super interesting to talk to Megan, and we are really excited for you guys to hear it. So let's jump into the interview. Hey, Megan, thanks for joining us today on Check the Locks podcast. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. For everyone that's listening, um, Megan is a dear friend of mine. Um, I met her when I was moved to New Orleans. Um, I actually work with her husband. We brought Megan on to do something a little bit different. So I like getting the requests from our listeners, and I have people text me about different cases. Um, and one day, Megan, you had reached out and you said, have you heard of this bikini strangler? And I was like, no. She's like, you should totally check it out. Um, I was actually at Clemson at the time of this murder. And so I got to digging in and I was like, you know what? This is really cool. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to have you on the show with John and I and just kind of see how this was when you were there and how you felt as a college student and just kind of get some details of what Clemson was like at the time. Yeah. And I'm very excited for that because it's definitely brought up some old memories that I've Put in the back. So like I mentioned before, Megan, you were living in Clemson, South Carolina at the time of the Tiffany Sowers murder. Tell us what you remember about the town before the murder of Tiffany Sowers. What was the environment like? How was college life there? Well, it was summertime. So back then, this was 2006, and I was going into my uh, junior year of, uh, of college. And Clemson in general only has about 15,000 students. That includes master's and graduate programs, and that's during the full school year. So I would say there's probably only a third of that that's actually there during the summertime. And of that, we're sort of spread throughout the city of Clemson and Central. And Central is actually where Tiffany ended up getting murdered and where my apartment was as well. Um, But prior to this happening, it was just a typical small college town. It was extremely safe. So safe, in fact, that we did things that our mothers always told us not to do. We would get into unmarked vehicles to go to frat parties. You know, we would do all these typical college things that you shouldn't do, but never thought anything of it. There was police patrol around. We knew all the cops. We knew everyone. The cops knew us. And it was just like very, very safe. Um, so before this happened, no one would, I don't think anyone locked their doors. I'll put it that way. I wanted to ask if you don't mind, because you had mentioned that you lived in a similar area. Like how close did you live to Tiffany Sowers at the time? 
Very close. And that's sort of what kind of still gives me goosebumps, especially now looking back on it. Um, we lived in a town called Central, which is just a couple miles north of Clemson. Basically, the town of Clemson is really just the university. And then the housing outside of that, as you get older and you move off campus, tends to be in the city of Central. And at that time, there weren't a lot of, a co- of apartment complexes. So the reserve, which is where Tiffany lived and my friends, was the first exit before mine. I was about less than half a mile away from where she lived. And in between, I lived at the summit at Cross Creek, at Cross Creek, which is no longer called that. It's called something else. But I lived in those apartments, sort of up a windy hill, backing into a forest. <laughs> and in between the forest and the reserve was a new construction site for University Village, which um, ended up being part of how Jerry Inman came into this setting. Megan, you mentioned a construction site. And I remember as I was doing my research that uh, Jerry Inman was working in construction, but it didn't seem that anything really tied him to any specific construction site. Can you elaborate a little bit about what that construction site and kind of what that meant to you living in your apartment and then Tiffany living in her apartment and where that construction site was? Definitely. So the way we're on old Greenville Highway is the name of that road. And like I said, at the time, there were only a few apartment complexes on there. So there was the reserve and then there was a big forest and that forest was being demolished at the time. And the university village was being built right there as the next apartments. And right next to that was uh, the summit at Cross Creek which is where I lived. And my apartments backed right off onto that forest area and onto that construction site, as well as Tiffany's. So that was the only thing in between our two um, apartments on that road. And then further up that road is just downtown Central, which no one uh, tended to go to because everyone was headed towards Clemson. That's really unsettling to think about Jerry Inman just working in that construction site and, you know, what made him choose going into the reserve apartments versus your apartments? You know, that could have been anybody. It could have been you. It could have been any of your friends or your classmates. And just knowing that he was around all the time, that's a, that's, that's a little nerve wracking. It was. It was very unsettling, um, especially when at the time we had no clue who it was or where they were coming from. It was definitely a scary time. And then again, looking back and all you're seeing are woods uh, is, is not not a fun, a fun time. Well, tied into that, I did want to ask you a question because it seems like it was a fairly small kind of close knit community, the way that you describe it. You know, you know, all the police officers, you're going to parties, you know, it's a small school. So it seems like everybody would know each other. And if it's not too hard of a question to ask, I mean, do you remember how you first heard about the murder? Like, was it something on the news or, you know, was it just something that kind of ripped through the town kind of by mouth? Right. Oh, it, it ripped through the town. Um, and actually how I found out, like, it's it's three degrees of, sep- of separation in Clemson. You know someone that knows someone. And the way I actually found out was one of the people that found Tiffany, I knew. And then that sort of set off I would say majority of people at Clemson and the town knew about the murder within the first few hours 
um, just based on talk. Because that, again, that's something that was not supposed to happen where we were located. And with that few people on campus too, it really shot through. Uh, within 24 hours, the university had already set up a meeting for everyone to come onto campus to talk about extra security, talk about extra police patrol. And again, Clemson was very safe. There were numbers we could call if we ever felt unsafe, the police would immediately be there. Um, so they were just talking to us about how to keep it safe. At that time, we had no idea who did this. Well, and I did want to ask you this as well. You know, even though the police would respond quickly and, you know, they had set up this meeting, what was the general atmosphere like? Because I can imagine, you know, that somebody of your age, it's something that's so shocking and just seems to kind of happen out of nowhere. I mean, was the town or the students were people on edge or did, I mean, could you feel it in the air? Oh yeah. 100%. In fact, I was alone. My, my other two roommates weren't there for the summer. Uh, so I was alone in my apartment. I was luckily on the third floor, but I remember the minute this happened, I bought those alarms that you put on the door where if you open it, it has a loud sound I am very fortunate that I have a lot of amazing friends and amazing guy friends. And until Jerry was found and we found out who did this, they would stay on the couch in my apartment um, for that whole time. So I had, you know, a few guy friends that lived in the same apartment complex as I did and they would just stay over and we would just, you know, try and keep it safe. But it was this definitely the scariest thing that, that I had gone through at that time in my life. Um, and the whole town was on edge and it was a weird feeling to go through the town because there was also an increased presence of news and an increased presence of police. And like they were talking about the FBI getting involved and Nancy Grace was like doing her whole thing on like reenacting it. And it was just, it was crazy, but it was something that now looking back, I was like, wow, it's insane that 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 happened and how it changed kind of how we, we viewed our life at that time. I can imagine. Uh, this is fascinating. I've never had this conversation with Megan. We didn't talk yeah. about this. And so like hearing how close this is to you, like I'm really fascinated by it. And I think that's the wrong word to use, but you know, being, I, if I'm putting myself in your shoes at what, maybe 20, 19. Yeah. 20? I was about to do 21. Yeah. it's about to turn. Yeah, like this is, you're just living this almost oblivious life as we do when we're in college. We are sort of responsible, right. but you are living without fear and the things that we did and how we behaved sometimes. And it's like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. And then to have something happen to someone who is basically just like you, you know, a young student there living you know, an apartment by herself while well, her roommates were there, but gone at the time. But like being there for the summer and not having anybody around, I know I would be afraid. You know, you kind of touched on it a little bit about your safety and having your guy friends come over. But I mean, I would have been terrified. I wouldn't have want to have left my house. Um, so I can't even imagine. And then how do you finish out the rest of your time in college? Like, do you live scared and afraid that someone like Jerry could strike again? Or do you live in some sort of, you know, relief knowing that he's off the streets? We all we saw on the news, all we saw everywhere were just those images 
of the ATM where all you could see were his neck tattoos. We had no clue. I mean, we had no idea who this guy was, but we saw that. And it was, it was insane in, in a way for us to be like, okay, this is just a regular person that lives here. That just wasn't, wasn't possible. And we knew that much because the, again, the, the family of Clemson, like uh, to have another person that was living there at, at Clemson to do that, which was what initially the police thought was it was one of her friends or like an ex or something. It just wasn't, you know, in our minds, like that's not possible because again, this is a small knit school, you know, everyone and you feel safe around a lot of your people and, and your peers. So to just see the images of those neck tattoos, not know the guy, the minute he was found, it was like, okay, this is an isolated incident. And I feel like that gave us the relief that we needed to kind of move on. But it, we definitely locked the doors after that. Yeah, because it definitely seems like there wasn't any real forced entry. You know, he just no. kind of went in on mm-hmm. her porch, walked in the door, and helped himself to her house. And you know, I mean, I lived in a small college town when I lived in Iowa, and it was the same thing. It was a little bit bigger because the, you know, there was a big university hospital there. But in the summertime, when the students were mostly gone, the town was so much smaller than it ever was in the spring and the fall. And we used to not always lock our doors. We just sleep with the windows open. Like, it's just a different environment there where you just have this like false sense of security, I guess. Um, 100%. And it's summer and it's like the the fun semester, you know, (laughs) like if you're there during summer Mm -hmm. to do fun things, to be around like your friends and, you know, go out to the bars every night, have an easy class, that type of thing. So I did want to ask you and I can say, you know, speaking on behalf of Olivia and myself, we are super grateful for the fact that you would be willing to sit down and kind of share your experience. And I'm sure that, this isn't always the easiest thing to think about or to talk about, but really what I was wondering was, you know, it's been now almost two decades since this happened. And it seems like, do you ever have one of those memories? Like there are certain songs that I can hear that like, I remember I'll hear it and I'll remember working in a pizza place when I was 15 years old. And like, I smell it. <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? I wanted to ask, like, what do you think it is about this isolated incident? If you can kind of, pinpoint it down that has caused it to stay with you the way that it has all these years later? I think that's a t- that, that's definitely a tough question, but I think a lot of it has to do with how it wasn't supposed to ever happen. And it's not like Clemson's a, it's not like we're at UNO. It's not like you're in the middle of a huge city where, you know, guns are around and violence is around and, and a, prominent part of your life. Clemson, again, is a very safe family. Um, So for that to have happened, and then to also know the person that found her, and for it to just been, I think, during that part of my life where it's like, okay, I'm an adult, I'm all by myself, I'm responsible, I'm able to live my own life. But then at the same time, it sort of sets everything back and you're like, okay, mom, where are you? Where are you? (laughs) I think that that is always going to play a part um, in our, in my life a little bit. And especially now having a daughter, like, oh my gosh, what I did back in my college days versus 
but I hope she doesn't <laughs> doesn't do for her own safety. Well, and Olivia and I have talked about that as well. You know, for me, part of the reason that this is so scary, and we'll talk about it a little bit later in the episode, but being a dad or, you know, being a husband, you know what I mean? This is just a total act of just randomness. You know what I mean? So the thought that that random evil could just somehow show up at your doorstep one day is absolutely terrifying. So I think it makes a lot of sense of why this would be with you in this way all these years later. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say, I really appreciate you being vulnerable and and coming on and, and talking about this. Cause I'm sure it's probably not something that you're always like, Oh yeah. I like revisiting these memories, you know? <laughs> right. And I appreciate you guys doing this episode because there's, there's a lot to be said about, you know, they're just crazy people out there. And again, Tiffany could have been me. Tiffany could have been one of my old roommates. So that's the, that's the, the reality and the scary part of it. And I just am lucky that it wasn't. Again, Megan, thank you so much for sitting down with John and I and just recapping your experience of the Tiffany Sauer murders while you were living in Clemson. I'm sure that this was tough to sit down and kind of revisit, especially since you have some connections so close to the murder. But again, we really appreciate it. And um, I hope that we did this case well for you. So thank you for the recommendation for this episode. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's discuss the lost soul, Jerry Buck Inman. Inman was born December 19, 1970, to a mother who had paranoid schizophrenia and a father who was an alcoholic. Inman and his sister had been sexually abused by their paternal grandfather. Starting around the age of three, Jerry's grandfather would tie his hands and feet, lean him forward over the bed, and penetrate him. He would also keep Jerry's older sister in the room blindfolded and tied up. Later, she would testify that she, too, was molested by their grandfather at an early age. Jerry's father, also, would rape him in a similar fashion like that of his grandfather. At age 10, he began using heavy drugs, and at age 13, he ran away and started living on the streets at age 15. He was arrested at the age of 17 in Florida. At the time of the Sauer murder, he was living with his mom and stepdad in Dandridge, Tennessee. And see, this is what I'm talking about. We've talked about this before on the show. But it's this trauma at a young age that just seems to completely rewire your brain. Yeah, I find that most of these people who have had either molestation or witnessed severe trauma in their early childhood, they turn out to be these serial killers. So in our first episode, we were talking about Paul Dennis Reed, and he was hit in the head real hard when he was a kid, had like physical trauma, and that seemed to be something that rewired him. And now we're talking about Inman, and he's a victim of these heinous rapes from his grandfather and his father. And it's definitely not excusing it, but I think it just speaks to the fact that like, if you're a victim of trauma like this at a, at a young age, it definitely has severe impacts on your behavior, what you're going to do, the kind of person you're going to be as an adult. So it's just crazy as we've gone through these stories to see how that trend kind of connects through a lot of the episodes. Yeah, and there was also kind of talk during some of the psychological evaluations. Um, there was mention of him crying out to help it as like a teenager before he ran away to his mother, like asking for help. And she was too either off of her meds or just didn't care and didn't understand because of her paranoid schizophrenia that she couldn't understand what he needed from her. So it's like he asked for help, but then couldn't receive the help due to who his parents were. 
one was molesting him and the other one paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, and to suffer this trauma from the age of three to 10 and to ask for help and to be doing what you should be doing in that is like letting somebody know, but then the people that should be there for you fail you. Again, I am not excusing this behavior or saying that you know anything that this person did was okay, but it makes sense that he became the type of person that he later did. Yeah, and that all makes sense. I mean, if you're having all this trauma, you are like, oh, not surprised when someone who lived the life that he lived commits such heinous crimes. Whereas if you were just this stand-up person and all of a sudden you committed this heinous crime, people would be like, well, where did that come from? So I think that's just a given when we talk about some of these psychopaths. I 100% agree. This is a good one. Earlier I mentioned that the DNA profiles were matched to Jerry Buck Inman on June 6th of 2006, and he was actually arrested later that evening. And the following day, he verbally confessed to the crimes and then gave a written statement the day after. In this statement, he said that he had parked at the apartment complex and the first door he tried was open. When he went inside, he found the girl sleeping and they started fighting. He said he then tied her hands behind her back with a piece of clothing. Inman then stole Sowers' wallet. He asked for her PIN number, but he later forgot it. He then admitted to raping Sowers. He said he put the bandana over his face to disguise him while he was at the ATM. He unfortunately couldn't remember the PIN number and couldn't get money from her ATM card. Inman stated he had seen a girl on the balcony earlier that day and claimed he went back after 1 a.m. According to Inman, he didn't think anyone was there and didn't mean for anyone to get hurt. He said, I was just looking for some money. That's so scary. Just trying to put myself in a situation where it's like one in the morning and you're just at home in your bed. You know what I mean? It's just, it's very, very frightening. Yeah. And to know that someone has seen you on your porch, I sit on my porch every night. If for someone to be like, Oh, I saw her on her back porch earlier in the day. And I just happened to go into her house after 1am thinking she wasn't home. Just saw her outside playing with her butterflies. <laughs> he obviously wasn't watching me too close or else you'd know I was in bed by like 9pm every night. Right. So let's jump into the trials and some sentencing. So we're going to do trials and sentencing together because on August 19th, 2008, Emin pled guilty to murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, first-degree burglary, and kidnapping. This means that he would waive the right to have a jury trial. The judge was concerned if Inman truly understood his guilty plea. Ultimately, the judge determined that Inman's plea was freely, knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently made. The sentencing proceedings would be held on September 8th, 2008. So this is kind of an interesting one compared to how we have had some of the other cases where there's this whole trial. In this case, Inman just pleads guilty, and so he has a written confession. He pleads guilty, and so he forfeits his right to have a trial with a jury. Yeah, and I'm interested to see if we get into why as we go further, but it seems like with DNA, I've got you on multiple cameras at different ATMs. You've now admitted to it. It seems like that would be the way to go. Right. There's nothing that says that he's not guilty by any means. Right. Including him. Right. Inman had some prior crimes and convictions. So like I mentioned earlier, he was first arrested at the age of 17 in Florida. And this was in 1989 where he was arrested for sexual battery with a weapon, robbery with a deadly weapon, grand theft auto, kidnapping, and aggravated assault with the intent to kill. So at this time, in 1989, he was sentenced to 30 years, but only served 17 years in a Florida state penitentiary. He was released and returned to Dandridge, Tennessee, sometime after his release in late 2005. That is crazy, because had he 
served his actual full sentence, Tiffany Sowers would still be here with us. This wouldn't even be anything that we were discussing. But because he got let out early, he then had the opportunity to do what he did. That's that's crazy to think. Yeah, because he got released in late 2005, and Tiffany Sowers' murder was in May of 2006. Now, the victim of this first crime said she was awakened with a man holding a revolver. She, too, was tied up and raped. The assault lasted about 20 minutes, and her roommates were forced to watch. And this was the crime that happened in Florida on December 14, 1987. So then he was sentenced to prison in 1989. So there's two cases of victims who reported sexual assaults to their local police departments. The first one happened on May 22, 2006. And again, the murder of Tiffany Sowers was on May 25, 2006. So these were just days prior to her murder. In Seaverville, Tennessee, on May 22, 2006, J.G. said she woke up to a knife at her throat around 5 a.m. The attacker asked her where her money and jewelry was. She showed him and he brought her back to her bedroom where he had her hands tied behind her back with her bra. She had a little girl who was crying in her bedroom as well. He attempted to rape J.G. anally but was not successful. He then turned her over and began to rape her vaginally as he continued to hold the knife to her neck. He forced her to clean herself in the bathroom. He continued to gather items to steal, finally sparing both of their lives and placing them in the bathroom. In Alabama on May 23, 2006, BBP said she recalls taking her daughter to the bus stop in the morning. She returned home around lunchtime when she was grabbed from behind with her mouth covered and a knife to her throat. Her hands were tied behind her back. He then robbed her, forced her into the bedroom, pulled her pants down and realized she was on her period and hid her in a closet. He then stole her car and her cash. She was able to then call 911 after he had left. He had entered the home by cutting a hole into the floor. Interesting enough, two weeks later, both women saw Inman's photo on CNN and identified him as their attacker. An investigator with Alabama's DeKalb County confirmed BBP's story with Inman. So to me, the whole, I didn't expect anybody to be home, it was just a robbery. Now hearing that Tiffany Sowers was murdered on the 25th, there was two attacks, the 22nd, the 23rd, where he obviously knew that they were home because he attempted to rape both of them. Right. This doesn't seem like, oh, I just didn't know anybody was home. This seems like an acceleration or started with the robbery and the rape. Then I tried to rob and rape somebody else. I couldn't rape that person. So I'm sure, you know, again, in all the true crime stuff that I watch, there's a feeling of like, I, I have to complete the task that I set out on. And then by the time he gets to Tiffany Sowers, it's escalated to the point where, you know, he's now the rape the theft, that isn't enough. There has to be another level. It has to go further. Yeah, and unfortunately, she wasn't one of Inman's survivors. It's crazy. Dr. David Price is an expert in forensic psychology, clinical psychology, and neuropsychology. In reviewing Inman's crimes, Dr. Price found similarity from the victim's crimes with Inman's own experiences when he was raped and tied up as a child. Inman's style is to tie up, rob, and rape, hand-tied, kneeling down, leaning the victims forward over the bed in an awkward position, suggesting that he was acting out what had happened to him. During these psychological evaluations, Inman was diagnosed with multiple mood disorders, including major depressive disorders with recurrent uh, psychotic features, bipolar disorder, personality disorder, including schizoid personality disorder, 
disassociative identity disordered and sexual paraphilia, which is also, I had to look this up because I wasn't sure exactly what the diagnosis was, but sexual paraphilia is also known as sexual perversion, which is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Well, it sounds like it is your sexual arousal is tied to like extremes. You know what I mean? Like whatever happened to Inman when he was a kid. Now there's something in there that provides a level of sexual arousement for him to do that to somebody else. And I wonder if maybe it's the power dynamic because he was powerless as a child. Now this is his way of exerting his power over others to be the, the powerful one, the one in control. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, and so he also had multiple suicide attempts and uh, was noted to be, like, withdrawn. During his psychological evaluations, he had been rated a 30 on the Global Assessment of Functioning Tool, which I had to look that up. Yeah, I actually looked it up as well, and the Global Assessment of Functioning, or GAS scale, is a scale that is used to rate how serious a mental illness may be. It measures how much a person's symptoms affect their day-to-day life on a scale from 0 to 100. And from what I'm reading here, it's designed to help mental health providers understand how well the person can do everyday activities. So it's it's pretty interesting. You can actually find a copy of this uh, online that would give you the 0 to 100. Yeah, so basically, if you're scored anywhere from 100 to 91, you're saying that this person has no problems. And then as you get lower in the score, you, you notice that they have few symptoms or have temporary stressors or mild symptoms in an area. And then when we get down to 30 to 21, which is where Inman was rated, it says that they have the presence of hallucinations or delusions, which influence behavior or serious impairment in ability to communicate with others or a serious impairment in judgment or inability to function in almost all areas. So this is how he was scored as how he was going to be functional. Yeah, so not only was he in poor mental health, but he was at a state where he could be experiencing hallucinations or delusions. I mean, that's crazy. You know, looking at this thing, it's I was thinking about golf, where it's like the lower the score, the better you are at having mental illness. And so Dr. Price had also stated that Inman had genetic predispositions for the mental disorders that he had because his mother was a paranoid schizophrenic and his father was an alcoholic. He was called a serial rapist by Dr. Price, who felt astounded that Inman was not diagnosed similarly while he was incarcerated in Florida. He felt by the rapid risk assessment for sexual offender recidivism criteria that he met the diagnosis. And again, I had to look up what the, they call it the R-R-A-S-O-R, the Rapid Risk Assessment for Sexual Offender Recidivism, um, which is a scale designed to assess different levels of sexual recidivism, which is also meaning like how likely they are to re-offend. So during Price's evaluation with Emin, he reported that Emin stated things like, I killed a 21-year-old college student with everything to live for. I deserve to get the death penalty. It was thought that Inman grew up in prison and was afraid of life outside of the prison walls. He had stated at one point that he planned to work for two years when he got out to give the money to his mother and then commit suicide. Jerry Buck Inman was sentenced to death for the murder of Tiffany Marie Sowers with aggravating factors of burglary in the first degree, kidnapping, and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree on April 22, 2009. A motion to reconsider a new trial was made April 23, 2009, and that motion was denied July 17, 2009. 
In April of 2020, a presiding judge by special assignment of the state Supreme Court ruled that Inman's constitutional rights were violated. This judge determined that Inman's sentencing should have been up to a 12-person jury and not to a judge alone. The order states that Inman will be resentenced in Pickens County on a date that's not yet scheduled. This means a jury will have the final say in whether Inman gets the death penalty or life in prison. In South Carolina, the Attorney General's office handles post-conviction relief cases. They will now have to decide if they want to appeal the state Supreme Court judge's ruling. If the Attorney General appeals, the case would go back to the state Supreme Court to make their final determination. So this has been quite the case, John. Yeah, I definitely agree. The fact that now Inman is kind of in this limbo state where he doesn't know if he is going to get the death penalty, if he's going to have life in prison. And if I'm correct, I don't know if we talked about it, but he made several suicide attempts, like eating barbed wire, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, there was times where I think where he slashed his wrist and then one time stabbed himself in his jugular while he was in prison. Yeah, this one definitely got under my skin. You know, I know the last episode that we did was, you know, Dean Coral and we're talking about, you know, 28 victims. And then we did another episode, you know, talking about him connecting to John Wayne Gacy and John Wayne Gacy having 33 victims. And I think this just goes to show that it's not a numbers game. You know what I mean? Like this guy is obviously an animal of a human being. And even though it's only one murder victim that we know of, like I feel dirty kind of listening to what this guy did and and learning about him, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. I think it raises a lot of questions on whether Inman is um, a serial rapist because he enjoys it or if he is um, just a terrible person because of his upbringing and that he just feels that people deserve to be treated the way that he was. And then it goes back to when we were talking about if he would have served his whole sentence for the sexual misconduct he committed before, this wouldn't even be in our vocabulary right now. And I agree. Tiffany Sowers would not be in our vocabulary. My concern is that if not her... Who? Yes. And in learning about him, it's very apparent that there was going to be somebody. Yeah. And it's just thankful that, you know, the two women who lived to tell their terrifying story didn't get murdered. And then they caught him so quickly after Tiffany Sowers was murdered. So it's like, how many more women would he have gone to after Tiffany had he not been caught so quickly with the DNA analysis and everything? Yeah, it is super scary to think, you know, if he wouldn't have been in CODIS, the national database from these early offenses, what could have happened if he wasn't caught so quickly? And, you know, having Megan on the show and giving her account of what was going on at the time. You know, it's just uh, there's a lot of creep factor to it. And uh, it like I said, it's just one of those things where I like I feel like I need to take a shower. You know what I mean? Where it's like you learn about this human and just you don't feel quite right. So let's jump into the deadbolt test. Where are you at on the deadbolt test with this one? So that's a good question. I am a father. I have a daughter. I have a wife. It is me and women in this house. I've talked about it before, (laughs) but, you know, even our dog is a lady. I'm heavily outnumbered. Mrs. Bradley Cooper. Mrs. Bradley Cooper. (laughs) But for that reason, for me, this is like an eight because I think me personally, not something that I'm necessarily scared of happening to me, but there's a lot of women in my life that I love, that I care about. And the idea of something like this happening to them and heaven forbid, you know, someone losing their life, that's something I don't think that you recover from as a parent or a husband. And it's absolutely terrifying. So for me, for that reason, I would give it an eight. I'm putting this one up there. You know, I think 
My last story that I brought was the carjacking gone wrong with Shannon and Christopher. And again, it's just the wrong place at the wrong time, kind of, where Shannon and Christopher were in the apartment complex parking lot. And then Inman just happens to be looking to rob somebody in Clemson. And the first apartment he goes to was open and it happened to be Tiffany's. And so as a single woman living alone, I make sure that I check my locks every night, set my alarm, and I'm putting this one at about a 9 or a 10. Probably about a 10 because that's how I'm feeling in this world right now. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Again, I'm looking at it through the lens of you know a father and a husband, but I can't imagine looking at this through the eyes of a woman. Just statistically, you hear all the stories that, you know, like I grew up learning that when I walk to my car, I keep my keys between my fingers or like make sure you have mace or make sure that you're always looking behind you. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm a very non-threatening human being, but you know, I'm kind of bulky and stuff like that. And I, I've noticed that I've been out, you know, walking somewhere and there might be a lady in front of me and like, she kind of picks up pace or cross the street. It's not because I'm doing anything threatening, but it's just like your women's Navy SEAL training is to be aware of of know. everything that's happening around you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've gotten to the point, and I don't know if it's since I've moved into this house and have a garage door or if it's since we've been doing this podcast, but I find myself now, um, and I've pretty much been open and honest about my weird quirks I do of being afraid, but now I've caught myself watching in my like reverse camera in my car as the garage door goes down so that I can see everything that's happening behind me until the garage door is like below the camera. And then I'll put the car in park. Yeah, because you want to make sure nobody's like ducking nobody's under the coming garage in. door. Yeah, you hear about those stories where like they chase them into their garage and into their house. And so now I've caught myself doing that. And like I said, I've just gotten this garage within the last year and we've been doing this podcast. So I think it's probably a combination of both. But we'll just add that into my checking behind the shower curtains. Well, and I will tell you, I saw a funny story online just because you had mentioned the garage that I thought our listeners would enjoy, but it was this guy. He was unloading a bunch of glass jars of beet juice. And so he was in his garage with his garage open and it was like one thirty in the morning. He was just doing it late for some reason. And as he was unloading, he dropped a just big glass jar of beet juice all over his garage floor. So it hit and just went everywhere. So he cleaned up the glass and then as he was walking back, there was someone standing outside of his garage door. His trunk was open, just red. Red everywhere. Looking. <laughs> and he was like, I swear to God, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. So, but yeah, you know, you don't know. It's like, you got to be careful with those. You know, you don't know if someone's just going to try to roll in or if they're stumbling on you or anything like that. So yeah, I, I get it, man. And, and, you know, as a dad, that's a scary thing that I'm going to have to like instill in my kid. You know what I mean? I think when you're a girl dad, that's something that you have to think about where, you know, if I had a little boy, I don't know if that's even anything that would enter into my head. But like I have to teach her that, like, the odds are that there's somebody out there who will take advantage of you if they can. So, like, be prepared for it. It's just, you know. Right. And that's sad. That's sad that that's the world we live in where we have to train our young girls to be that way. But it is. I mean, like I said, I'm aware of my surroundings all the time, watching and watching. So, yeah, I'm going to give this one. I'm just going to give it a solid 10. 
All right, well, that's where we land on the deadbolt test. I'm coming in at a strong eight. Olivia hitting it at a strong 10. We want to know, where do you fall? Is this an eight? Is this a 10? Is this a one, a five? Where do you fall on the deadbolt test? We want to hear from you. Let us know. You can find us on the socials. We're on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod, Twitter at Check the Locks. And please join our Facebook group. We're at almost 400 members. We're five people away from 400 members in the Facebook group. Everyone in that group is amazing. We love all of you guys so much, so dearly. We are in there hanging out every single day. So please follow us on the socials. If you are on Facebook, pause the show, go into the show notes. There's a link to join the Facebook group. Sign up. We would love to hang out with you. And Olivia, I think it's time for a five-star review. What do you think? So this five-star review comes from Lolo in the fofo O. <laughs> I have to say it that way, but it's Lolo in the 440. <laughs> this is such a great podcast. I binge listen to stuff like this at work and tend to tune out at some point. Not with Check the Locks. The hosts are fun, have great chemistry, and are not arrogant like some of the other true crime hosts can be. The topic hits close to home, and you can truly relate to the stories. There isn't a lot of speculation or deep analysis of what happened. Just a straightforward story and facts. It's refreshing and captivating. Can't wait for more episodes. So thank you, Lolo in the 440. Lolo in the 440, thank you so much for the five-star review. Thank you for the kind words. I am so happy. I know... Olivia, you're probably right there with me, but the fact that we get to be part of your workday, that we are something that helps you get through. I do apologize because I know I said speculation like three times in this episode. You said, hey, they don't speculate. <laughs> we don't really speculate, though. I feel like we do. We give straight facts. Yeah, but thank you so much for checking it out. Lolo, we would love to send you some stuff. We got buttons. We got stickers. We got magnets. Again, hit us up on the socials. If you are not a social person, head to checkthelockspod.com. Send us an email. We would be happy to send you out some stuff. You just got to reach out and let us know where to send it. And Olivia, as always, if someone wants to have their five-star review read on the show, if someone wants to win some swag, some loot, what is the best way for them to do that? You'll need to go to the Apple Podcast app and go to our Check the Locks homepage. Scroll to the bottom where you see the five stars and tap all five of our stars and write us a review and let us know what you think. Awesome. It's simple. It's easy. It's a great way to win some free stuff. And that is it for this week's episode. I can't believe we got another one done. This is episode number 11. We are officially over 10 episodes, which is kind of crazy. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends. Again, hang out with us on the socials. Leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. But that is it for this week's episode. Join us again next week as we dive into another terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week.